Thank you. It's uh, good to be back on a less stormy night than last time. It's actually quite pleasant to be outside this evening. We're going to continue thinking about this theme of knowing God. And we're moving on this evening from considering the eternal interpersonal dynamics of the triune God to the character of God. And in theological parlance, this is often presented as a discussion of the attributes of God. And in using that word attribute, we are employing a term that everyone acknowledges is less than satisfactory. But just last as last week, we had to employ some terms, otherwise we wouldn't have anything to say at all. So, too, we we use the the word attribute. It wouldn't really do for me to say the lecture's over now. We haven't got any adequate terms to proceed to say anything for the next hour. Uh, So we'll make do with the best that we have. Now, what's wrong with attribute? Well, you see, attribute suggests something optional, something non-essential. Yes, I'm going to use the example of a man with a red beard, and I'm just making sure there isn't one around. Um, suppose somebody came in, a man came in the door, uh, he could be said to have the attribute of a red beard. He wouldn't be any the less a man if you took the red beard away. It's something that is in the attribute, is in the physical attribute in that case, is in some sense optional. But you see, there are no optional attributes with God. A divine attribute isn't something that is attached or added to the divine being. We're trying to come to some better understanding of what God's like in himself. We're dealing with a being who's far greater than our capacity to comprehend him. And so we have to think about things first this way and then that way. And we use the word attribute in relation to the particular angle that we're trying to think about God along. But we mustn't suppose they're separable or separate from God. All God's attributes are essential and they all cohere harmoniously in the one reality of the indivisible, personal God. Now, there are set before us this evening two attributes. Now, I'm deliberately saying set before to remind you that I didn't choose this theme. It was set before me and said, on you go, try this. Holiness and justice. Now, that particular combination leads us immediately to think about the class of God's attributes that theologians term his moral attributes. If you look at some of the large theological works, you'll find these moral attributes listed as God's goodness, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. And with all these things, we can get so far thinking from below. We have an idea of what good means, of what just means, 
We would use it, applying it to our fellow human beings. And we can then begin to build up a picture of what it might mean in relation to God when we think of goodness or justice that is exalted and unblemished and perfect. And that sort of approach to thinking about God's attributes isn't wrong. It's justified by Scripture. Man has been made in the image of God. There are resemblances. There are lines of contact that can be traced. We should expect to find that there are attributes that we can we share in common between humanity and God. Of course, they're infinitely perfect with God, but still we can get a help towards appreciating them by seeing them at an earthly level. But however useful that may be, in terms of thinking of other attributes of God, it's inadequate to deal with the scriptural representation of God's holiness. Because here we're dealing with a concept that is at the same time understandable and elusive. And I think the best way to go about it this evening is to consider God's holiness in two, not entirely separate, but in two distinct ways. I'm going to call them the the majesty holiness of God and the ethical holiness of God. Because I think it's only by making that distinction that we will do justice to those aspects of what Scripture is telling us when it says God is holy. Those aspects that are unique and incommunicable. The victory song of the saints in heaven declares of the Lord, you only are holy. There is a sense in which it is true only of God that the word holy can be used. And yet at the same time, the Christian life is presented in scripture as a call towards holy living now and perfect holiness hereafter. And that call for holiness is reinforced by the very character of God. Be holy, for I am holy. And I think the only way that I can understand that, the fact that on the one hand it's said of God, he alone is holy, and yet there is presented before the believer the challenge to be holy because God is holy, I think it's perhaps significant it's not be holy as I am holy, by the measure of my holiness, but because or for I am holy. I think the only way to understand, to reconcile those two, is to recognize that in Scripture, uh, the term holy is being used not always in quite the same way. So first of all, let's see what is meant by the majesty of, Holiness of God. Now, the older way of understanding a word or a concept was to try to find out its etymology or what is the origin of the word. 
And it's still an approach that can have some value. And as regards the word holy, not the English word holy, but the Hebrew word that lies behind it in the Old Testament. I'm not a professor of Old Testament for nothing. As regards the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, there have been two suggestions as to what its basic idea might be. One is the concept of separation, and the other is the concept of brilliance. In modern discussions, the background of separation has become the accepted etymology. But I'm not sure but that on occasions the idea of brilliance is there also in Scripture. We're going to look quite a bit this evening at the prophecy of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 17, the prophet says, The light of Israel will become a fire, the Holy One a flame. And as you know, in Hebrew poetry, and the prophet is there speaking in the exalted language of Hebrew poetry, uh, one line echoes the thought of another. And there the Holy One is echoing the thought of the light of Israel. It's uh, Isaiah ten seventeen. It's part of a number of verses in Scripture uh, where the being of God is linked with light. Psalm 104, near the beginning, he wraps himself in light as a garment. And perhaps better known, 1 Timothy 6, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. The idea of God in himself as light has very distinct scriptural connections with the majesty holiness of God. But it's undoubtedly the case that the other idea of separation is also present. When one speaks of God as holy, one is speaking of the being who is separate from the ordinary world of existence. One is talking of the one who is different, who is transcendent. God, the Holy One, is separate from his creation and from all that is not God. Our thinking about this holiness has actually become more articulate this century. One would repudiate the, the theological enterprise that the German theologian Rudolf Otto was engaged in when he wrote his book, The Idea of the Holy, back in 1919. Uh, Otto was trying to build up a theory of religion based not on revelation but on human subjective responses uh, to, to various events. Uh, his approach in general was quite wrong. But his book was groundbreaking in the vocabulary it gave us, in the thinking uh, he presented regarding the human response to what is holy. He contributed the classic phrase, Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans, 
a, a fear and fascination before the numinous. He saw that there was an essential aspect, and it reflects scripture, that God as holy is God the absolutely unapproachable. It links into the idea who lives in light unapproachable. And he linked that to the human response of dread and awe. To the response where we feel our creatureliness. Our awareness of our insignificance as finite beings before the all-encompassing majesty of the infinite. That reaction is something that... It's very difficult to explore because we haven't got the vocabulary. We haven't even perhaps got the the, the inner perceptions. It is something that is is felt rather than analyzed by us. There once was a book, I've never read the book, but I've heard it referred to often with the title, Your God is Too Small. I think it came out in the early 60s. But, although I've never read the book, The malaise identified by its title is an undoubted spiritual problem. Our thinking about God is often too small. And one of the greatest ways of counteracting that is to take time in our busy lives to meditate on the majesty, holiness of God. Can I place it against the background of Old Testament times? When you looked round the religions of the ancient world, they all made the distinction between the holy and the profane. As they talked about their gods, the powers that they felt that were at work in the world around them, the peoples of the ancient world were, were overwhelmed. They were aware of unpredictable forces. They were aware of so much that was unknown in life and in living. And their reaction to this perception that they had that there was more to life than the ordinary was a reaction of fear and dread. In the ancient world, the holy brought with it the fear of the fickle, of the irrational, of the capricious nature of the gods. There was no rationale to the relationship between the holy and the ordinary. And ancient religion was therefore an attempt to placate the gods, to keep them happy so as to avoid their irrational outbursts of anger against individuals. Worship was an exercise in bribing the gods, manipulating them, feeding them to keep them happy so that the worshipper could avoid the worst of the ill effects of the divine petulance. Religious devotion in the ancient world, whether you're thinking of Greece or Rome or Egypt or Babylon, religious worship was designed to force the worshipper's agenda on the divine. And in such a system, 
morality had no connection with religion. The gods, as well as human beings, were to be treated with fundamental mistrust. You couldn't rely on either. Human laws were just an attempt to make life manageable. There was no divine ethos underlying human conduct. Religion was bribery on a cosmic scale. The holy was the utterly irrational, the fickle, the capricious. And over against that, we have the scriptural presentation of the holy. Holy as a word first occurs in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. It's almost there uh, back when in Genesis 2 when God sanctified uh, the seventh day. But its first real appearance is Exodus 3.5. There's Moses at the burning bush. And the Lord speaks to him out of the burning bush and says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God goes on and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we are told, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Three things there I'd like to emphasize. Holy is there used in the context of God as a person. The other, the higher, the divine is personal. Not a, not a force of nature, not fate, not some unpredictable chance. The word occurs in the context of divine speech. There are those who talk about God as the holy other. I don't particularly care for that term, but if you do use it, spell it with a capital O. Because in scripture, the holy other is always personal. It's never impersonal fate or chance. It is the personal presence of the Lord in that manifestation in the burning bush that set off that piece of ground from all other ground as holy. It was nothing intrinsic to the ground. It was nothing intrinsic to the bush. It was the fact that God had been pleased to focus his presence there and through that to reveal himself to Moses. Holiness in scripture is connected with the person of God. But it's also the God of the covenant. This is the passage where God grandly reveals his covenant name. This is the passage where, as in verse 6 of Exodus 3, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He comes as the God, not only who is personal, but who wants to have a personal relationship with his people. He comes as the God who does not present himself as the capricious or the fickle one, but as the one who is committed to the engagement he has undertaken 
to be God to Abraham and to his seed after him. So we have holiness connected with the personal God. Holiness connected with the committed covenant God. And we see there also Moses' response of wonder and amazement. The overwhelming presence of God in the flame that ever maintained itself and yet did not consume the bush. Moses was afraid and would not look. It is mankind overwhelmed by the presence of the majesty holiness of God. Overwhelmed and yet Moses didn't run away. Fascinated by it. Drawn towards it. He didn't turn and flee from the bush. Even at the very moment that he was aware of his intrusion, as it were, into the very presence of God, he knew that in a sense that was where his destiny was to be found. Moses stays, though his face is hidden. And one sees elsewhere in Scripture other portrayals of this awareness of the majesty, holiness, the exaltedness of God. One occurred earlier in Genesis 28. The the word holy isn't found in that chapter. But on the occasion when Jacob was running away and stopped at Bethel, God revealed himself to him in a dream. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Genesis twenty-eight sixteen. There's no temple there. Spent the night out in the open with a stone for his pillow. But he had been granted vision. The vision of the staircase rising up into heaven. Vision of God in his holiness. And he felt, as Moses did, that awe, that fear, that holy reverence, as he had a glimpse of the absolute wonder of what God is in himself. But the classic revelation of the majesty, holiness of God in the Old Testament must be the chapter that was read earlier, Isaiah chapter 6. Five chapters of the prophecy have gone before. That's because Isaiah, the prophet, wanted to set on record his divinely given message before he presents his personal experience by which the message was entrusted to him. I'm fairly confident that Isaiah 6 sets before us the inaugural vision of the prophet. And it places, the the vision places in the strongest possible contrast the absolute divinity of the Lord and the dependence and relativity of all created existence. This was one of the things that Isaiah as a prophet was endowed with in a far greater measure perhaps than any other prophet. 
the difference between what is God and what is not God. We don't know whether the prophet was in the temple in Jerusalem or whether he experienced this vision somewhere else. In many respects, it doesn't matter whether it was in the Jerusalem temple or not because he's been given by the Spirit insight into all that the Jerusalem temple really signified. It is as if the the veil that separates this world from the heavenly realms is opened up and the prophet is brought to see into the throne chamber of the king who is on high. And he enters into this atmosphere where everything is expressive of holiness. He sees this throne chamber where everything is pervaded by the divine. And here the seraphs cover themselves before the majesty holiness of God. Now it's, I think, significant. Here are seraphs. Here are, it would seem, the highest representatives of the angelic world. Those who are permitted to be in immediate attendance on the heavenly king. Those who have never sinned. Those who have never fallen. Those who in themselves have no moral blemish. And yet there is the representatives of this higher world. In the presence of the holy God, they feel their own insignificance. Just as profoundly as the earthborn prophet. They cover themselves in self-abasement, saying that they were unworthy to be in the presence of the living God. And they utter that cry, the thrice holy cry, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in that Trisagi, and in that threefold uh, ascription of holiness, some have found an anticipation of the Trinity. It may well be there. We're hearing the language of angels who had immediate access to the reality of God. But certainly the language expresses a superlative more than a superlative. There is presented to us there this heightened sense of the divinity of God. This holiness that sets him apart from every aspect of creation. It's something that pervades the thinking of Isaiah thereafter. God is the one supreme reality from whom everything else derives its significance. The fullness of the earth is his glory. There's perhaps a better translation than the whole earth is full of his glory. The idea is that there's no place left for anything else except as it functions as a medium for reflecting and expressing the divine glory. What is the difference between holiness and glory? Well, holiness is looking at what God is in himself. 
We can't really have direct access. That's the whole point. He lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. But glory is the effulgence of the divine holiness. Glory is what can be seen. The heavens declare God's glory. One can look there and see is something of the splendor and the grandeur of God. That splendor and grandeur that originates in the difference, in the inescapable and unapproachable difference of who God is. So if you read through Isaiah, you find time and time again that he describes God as the Holy One of Israel. The one who is set apart in Israel's praises. But the one who is specifically in Isaiah above all else. Isaiah uses a term for idols, for pagan gods. Elilim. It's the, if you made up the English word godlets, you begin to capture the, the, the derision and the scorn that he puts into this made-up word. He, he, he's uh, making a fool of them. He's saying they're just little godlings, godlets. There's nothing real about them at all. They are insignificant. They're just caricatures of the one true and holy God. And that one true and holy God, Isaiah presents in terms of exaltation, loftiness. It's there in that vision. He saw the throne high and lifted up. There's the well-known verse later on in chapter 57 of the prophet. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. The picture that the word picture that Isaiah uses to convey the otherness of God, the transcendence of God, is the picture of height of loftiness. Perhaps you know that verse better in the, the authorized version, who inhabits eternity rather than who lives forever. I rather think the NIV stumbled there. I think there's a lot to be said for who inhabits eternity. But that's beside my point just now. It's high and lofty one. He lives in a high and holy place. His name is holy. And that is the one whom the seraphs celebrate. That is the one of whom the prophet Hosea records I am God and not man, the Holy One. Holiness has been traced back to the incomparable majesty of the deity. Our theologians have often remarked, and said it in different ways, that if there was one attribute of God that was more central or fundamental than any other. It's this attribute of holiness. If it were permissible to select one, then the scriptural emphasis seems to justify selecting the holiness of God. 
You don't find mention made of God's mighty name or his wise name. A few times you find his great name. But the favorite scriptural expression is his holy name. And remember, name is the not just a tag. Name is what he has revealed himself to be. His character as he has shown it is that of holiness. No other attribute of God is singled out in the way in which the seraphim single out holiness to be repeated three times to describe God. We don't find even great attributes like God being eternal or God being faithful repeated in this way. There does seem to be something about the majesty holiness of God that runs through all else in his character and casts a glorious luster over it all. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? As Moses sang in the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. Or as Hannah put it in 1 Samuel 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So first of all, we have wholly used in this way to describe God in his majestic otherness before whom our reaction is that of awe, of silence, of that fear, not a craven fear, but that fear that arises when the finite contemplates the perfection of the infinite God. But besides the majesty holiness of God, there is another aspect that is definitely presented in Scripture, and that is the ethical holiness of God. It's not totally separate, but it is distinct. The fundamental idea of the ethical holiness of God is also that of separation. But this time it is separation not from the created realm, not from the finite, but rather from that which is sinful. It is separation from that which is morally evil. Because of his holiness, God can have no communion with sin. As Elihu said in the book of Job, far be it from God to do evil, for the Almighty can do no wrong. Or as is said later by Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. The ethical holiness of God has therefore got a a negative side to it. It's got this intolerance of all that is impure. God is the one who in his holiness turns from all that is wrong. But it's not just a negative concept, God's ethical holiness. There is a positive side to it. It has the idea of moral excellence, of ethical perfection, of moral purity. 
And the ethical dimension of God's holiness entails another aspect to the human response to the holy. We saw that even the seraphim, who knew no sin, the angelic beings who had never fallen, presented with the majesty holiness of God, felt utterly insignificant, covered themselves in abasement before him. But it wasn't just the seraphim who reacted in Isaiah 6 to the holy presence of God. There was the prophet Isaiah also, a child of his time. And he reacts to God's holiness at this other level also, because he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is the second dimension to the human response to the holiness of God. Not just insignificance, not just awe, but a sense of impurity, conviction of sin before the ethically pure and unblemished. When we begin to grasp the moral excellence of God, we stand aware of our own profaneness. We stand aware of our own uncleanness in the presence of the Holy One. There is the perception that our own personal unworthiness seems almost to be capable of defiling holiness itself. There is a grand New Testament example of the same feeling in the way in which Peter reacted. Remember the time when there was the miraculous draft of fish and Peter saw in what the Lord did on that occasion. He saw something of who Jesus really was and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He had had a glimpse of the holiness of our Lord. It had reflected in upon him himself in such a way that he realized his own unworthiness. In many ways it was the last thing he wanted for the Lord to go away. But that's what came to his lips. We can't be together. There's such a gulf between us. There is this separation This separation in which Christ is the Holy One and I am the sinful man. Now God had spent the early early part of Scripture, the Old Testament revelation, revealing his holiness in both senses. No sooner is holiness mentioned in Exodus 3 then mentions of holiness occur in almost every page throughout the Pentateuch. God's people are to be the holy nation. The book of Leviticus sets out in various forms the injunction, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Setting both the standard and the motive for holiness. 
Much of the law of the Old Testament is framed in terms of holiness, in terms of the separateness of objects dedicated to the Lord. There was the use of types and symbols. There was the holy land, the holy city, the holy place, the holy priesthood, all the rites connected with holiness in the Old Testament sanctuary. To impress on the Old Testament people of God their need to be a separate and distinct nation from those surrounding them. They had been brought into existence by God. They were to live in a way that reflected that separation. They were set apart for his, for his service. And that service had to be carried out in the way he directed. In the way he was in himself. But we mustn't suppose, I've met with those who've done this, that the holiness that's referred to in the ceremonial law was designed merely to emphasize relational holiness, separation from the surrounding world, separation to God's service. Because the idea of holiness as separation is never merely separation from, it's separation to the Lord's service. This never occurred simply as relational. There was always the aspect of ethical holiness. All the objects that were used for tabernacle service, set apart, was done by washing, by anointing, by sacrifice, by sprinkling of blood. In that way alone could they lose their their common character, could they lose their profaneness. All that was associated with impurity and sinfulness had to be purged away before they could be appropriately used in divine service. As the writer to the Hebrews said, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no, no forgiveness. As I wrote that down today, I said, oh, I'm sure there'll be an awkward person there that will say nearly everything. What's not covered? So I'm ready for you. I looked it up. <laughs> nearly everything was cleansed by blood. The vast majority emphasizing that it was ethical purity that was being symbolized in the separation of the holiness, even of the objects in Old Testament times. And of course in New Testament times the emphasis focuses on persons. The types and shadows have gone. The temple is now taken up with the temple of the church with the temple of the individual believer's body in whom the Holy Spirit comes. We find I won't take the time to look through all the passages but we find that in the New Testament the triune God is presented as holy. The Father is holy. Our Lord addresses him as Holy Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17. The Son is holy. He is the Holy One of God, the Holy and Righteous One. But supremely it is the Spirit who is holy. In many ways that perhaps explains why there aren't so many references to God as holy in the New Testament because the focus is on the Spirit as the person in the Godhead 
who has the task of presenting holiness and of creating holiness in God's people. The holy God wishes to see ethical holiness as the pattern of his people's living. And so there is, this, there is a twofold process. And it's rather like what happened uh, to the, the utensils uh, for the Old Testament tabernacle. At one level, God's people are set apart. Uh, there is a relational change. Just as in the Old Testament times, there was the pot. It was created for ordinary use, but it was then taken and set apart. So that there is, in New Testament, the definitiveness of God's people being saints, being holy ones, being those who are relationally set apart by God. But there was also the process In the case of the articles, it was the process of washing or anointing or whatever. In the New Testament, it is spelled out that the Holy Spirit engages in a process of educating, of leading and empowering God's people so that we can live in the way in which characterizes, should characterize those who are holy. The Spirit works the likeness of God, the family likeness in the people of God, dissociating us from sin and devoting us to a life of God-likeness. And that's got both its negative and its positive sides. Just as the holiness of God himself, the ethical holiness of God, had its negative and its positive side. Negatively, the work of the Spirit involves a separation from all sinful activities that defile. Come out from them, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. He talks about let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So that there is the separation, the negative side of holiness, and there's also the positive side. God, as ethically pure, is to be mirrored in the lives of his people. The qualities of God as the one who is loyal to his commitments, persevering in all that he enters into, in no way going back, on the word that he has spoken, is the pattern of the holiness, the ethical purity and constancy to which the Holy Spirit works, towards which the Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's people. So that Paul can also say in Romans, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity, And to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. And that's as good a lead-in as any to the third part, which is the righteousness or the justice of God. There's a very clear relationship, very close relationship between holiness and righteousness. 
We looked earlier at Isaiah chapter 6. And in many ways it's nice to stay in the beginning part of the chapter. Where after the prophet has confessed his unworthiness, his lips are touched by the coal from off the altar, and he's assured of his forgiveness. But it doesn't stop there. The holy God, the thrice holy God, gives his prophet a message. And that message is one of the dire consequences of sin, even for the professed people of God. The holy God cannot ignore that which is in defiance of his holiness. He will act righteously and vindicate his sovereign rule over this world. Now the fundamental idea of righteousness, and I'm saying righteousness, I know it says justice. The justice and righteousness are the one word group basically, both in Greek and Hebrew. It's English that teases them apart. Now, whether it's justice or righteousness, the fundamental idea is that of conformity to a standard. Scripture will talk of righteous balances and righteous measures those that conformed to proper standards. One of the great problems in the trading of the ancient world uh, was the, uh, the fact that there were no weights and measures inspectors to go around making sure that the traders in the market, uh, their weights actually corresponded to what was scratched on them. And there was a great deal of cheating. In the same way righteousness is used in, in Psalm 23, he will lead me in paths of righteousness. Perhaps we tend to interpret that ethically. But that wasn't, in the original picture, I think that wasn't what it was at all. It's still the sheep. The sheep being led. Led in paths that are everything that a path should be. In terms of straightness, in terms of not going near hazards, keeping away from steep cliffs. He will lead me in a perfect way. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3. You'll find the scriptural idea of righteousness in a strange phrase, oaks of righteousness, trees of righteousness in the authorized version, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Does this mean righteousness is some sort of plant, some sort of acorn that grows in the oak? No, that's not the idea at all. These are oaks that correspond to all that an oak tree should be. Righteousness is correspondence with a standard. And the oak or the path or the balance and the measure that is righteous is the one that comes up to what is required. Now in speaking of divine righteousness, we have to be very careful that we don't make God come up to some standard that's out with himself. As if there was something higher than God to which he had to conform his behavior if he was going to be righteous. The standard to which God conforms is his own nature. He conforms to what he is in himself. He is the final standard of what is right, of what is proper in conduct. 
When God is said to act righteously, he is conforming to what he is in himself. As Abram said to the Lord, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord himself bears testimony later in the prophecy of Jeremiah. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. God is righteous because he measures up consistently to the standard of his own being. And you can express that standard as God's ethical holiness. We can trust him. We can rely on the commitments of his word. We need not be afraid of being let down when we enter into a relationship with him. He will be true to it because he is righteous. He lives up to the standard of his own ethical holiness. Questions can be asked. Scripture is not afraid to confront the question, does God always live up to the standard of his own holiness? Is God righteous? Paul confronts that question in Romans 9 uh, when he envisages the, someone objecting. Paul has just said that God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and will harden whom he wants to harden. And in Romans 9, he envisages someone objecting. Why does God still blame us? Who can resist his will? And on those occasions, as on others, say in the book of Job, the answer of scripture to the questioning of man is who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? It's the same with Job. God doesn't give Job an explanation. An explanation to justify his actions so that Job can see why God's actions were right. Instead, the book of Job concludes with a statement of God's majesty and power and a call to all to acknowledge him for what he is and to trust in his righteousness. So that there is the right action of God. But we can't leave the theme of divine righteousness without recognizing the particularly Pauline use of the phrase, the righteousness of God. Because it relates to this same question. The God who reveals himself in the Bible takes sin so seriously that no merely human effort can erase its guilt. No human effort can cover its pollution. It's only the holy God who can deal effectively with the polluting impact of sin and rebellion in his creation. And he does it by providing the righteousness of God. 
that righteousness which is worked out because of what Jesus Christ has done. It is not the righteousness of those who have lived and gained for themselves favor with God that Paul is speaking of when he speaks of a righteousness from God that has been made known. This righteousness, he says, from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's the same idea. It's conformity to what God wants. It's conformity to what God requires. But the requirement that he makes of the sinner, unable to raise himself from the mire into which he has plunged himself, is the requirement of putting his trust totally in the one who has borne the penalty of sin. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But all are justified. It's the same word. All are given righteous status freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God was demonstrating his justice in this. He was demonstrating that the holy God was not treating sin as if it were nothing at all by some act of divine pardon or clemency saying, there is no need to worry about it. But by taking the full consequences and having them borne by a substitute, he is able to present the requirement before us as individuals of finding this God-given righteousness This God-achieved righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. The justice of God is shown in the righteousness he has established through the work of Christ. But God's justice has teeth. There is the other side to the situation. God in his justice will act. He will use compulsion and force to ensure that his dominion over this world is asserted and reclaimed. God will punish those who continue in their wickedness. I don't often cite Karl Barth with approval. But I came across this quote in somebody else's writing, that Bart said of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, that this is perhaps the most emphatic statement in the whole of the Bible on the theme of divine holiness. And it's that, this very solemn message, I'd like to leave you with this evening. If we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, 
and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fear, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Divine holiness will overcome every form of moral evil. This sin-warped universe in which we live will be reclaimed. The holy God will respond personally and righteously in justice to all that is in rebellion against his holiness. And he will ensure that there is that new city, that new creation, that is permeated with holiness. So that as the prophet in the Old Testament envisaged it, even the bells and the horses' halters will have holiness to the Lord inscribed on them. God will have the last word. God in his holiness will have the last word. And he calls on us now not to treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, but to close in by faith with his son, the Savior. You better give them a minute to stretch their legs again. I always think when you hear John really a chairman is not necessary at all. But um, just for a few moments, but a few moments only, you may stretch your legs and or talk, but you may not see the room. <laughs> just for a few moments, and then I'll call you to order. A few moments, and please have your comments and your questions ready. Uh, and I know quite a number of people by name, so if you don't have them, I will call upon you. I guess I know one of the questions already, which will be forming in at least one mind. That's the question about nearly. <laughs> nearly all. But you looked it up today before you... Oh, came. nearly all, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> it was the accent that threw me. <laughs> okay. Well, you may for a few moments just uh, exercise your minds and legs. It wasn't. Not enough space to put things out on. No, no, I, I like to spread out. I like to. <laughs> this is tiny. thoughts and, uh, and questions. Shall we uh, recommence, please? And uh, can I ask for the first comment or question? I think that's, that's cheating at the moment. You could, that may come later if, if, if we've time. Yes. That's great. Is there a connection between God's holiness and God's love? 
What is the connection? What is the relationship between God's holiness and God's love? Is there one? Well, well I'm very tempted to see. Oops, very tempted to see. Come back in week five. We're doing God's love then. Uh, uh, every attribute of God, you know, we separate them up because it, we can't take it all in. Otherwise, we've got to parcel it up. Yes, uh, God's love is conditioned by his holiness. It is a holy love. Uh, Therefore, the the, the terms of it are unblemished, that there is nothing impure in it. Uh, But no, I I think it would also be the case that one would want to say that there is a separate motivation there. Holiness colors it, but doesn't determine it. In the same way, it is God's power, holy power, Yes, God is powerful, but uh, and his holiness colors that power, but it doesn't explain it. In the same way, God's love is a holy love, but it doesn't totally explain his love. So that you want to say they can be distinguished, but you don't want to separate them. And you will come back again for Lecture 5 as well. I'm sure it will be said at greater length. Right. Ian, I'm never sure whether you're just scratching your chin or wanting to say something. Now that is history. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, Carl Jung said there was no substitute for a genuine religious experience. And I often feel, personally, that this is the problem of the Christian church at the moment conveying to the outside world the reality of genuine Christian experience you mentioned uh, Otto and the newness and the question I would like to ask doesn't modern man experience an objective newness well let's see what the question means Um, yes I think it is the case that each one of us and I would justify it in terms of Romans chapter 1 there is a testimony in the universe to to the reality of God's power uh, so that not just every modern man but every human being that's come to years of discretion on earth has been presented with testimony that shows something of the reality of God that calls them to wonder and awe just even looking up at the stars at the vastness of the universe there is testimony there uh, to the even greater vastness and greatness of the creator so that there is There is an awareness of the other with a small. I feel, however, that it takes the message of Scripture, the message of Revelation, to transform that feeling of the numinous, feeling of the the awe of the something that is far greater. Um, 
Yeah, the, the passage is Romans one nineteen. What may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been seen been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. But in our sinfulness we need the interpreting light of Scripture to get from that experience of the otherness of the mysterious to a personal experience with the living God. It's just as if, um, suppose Moses, when he saw the burning bush, there had been no voice, there had been nothing said. He was just left with the mystery of a bush that burned and didn't burn up, he'd have been no nearer God. He would have been given an awareness of something that was awesome, something that was tremendous, and yet it would not have impacted on him. It took the revelatory word of God uh, to say, I am the God of your father. I am Yahweh, uh, the being one for that experience of the numinous to become a truly religious experience filtered through the word of God, the message of God. Yes, sir. Professor Mackay indicated at the beginning of his talk that he was dissatisfied with the level of sensitivity that believers have to holiness. How, my question is, how do you, Professor Mackay, promote uh, an awareness in Christians of the holiness of God as a minister? You feel that it that if it, if it were promoted and if it existed and if we had a greater taste for holiness I feel that it would there would be a huge impact upon the Christian church in general how do you promote what you have taught tonight I suppose my answer is rather like the answer to those who ask, uh, how do you promote happiness? And the answer is always, well, you don't try to be happy. That's the last way you'll find happiness. In the same way, I don't think approaching holiness head on is going to work. I tried to hint in what I was saying that what we have to try to do is to cultivate personally a greater awareness of who God is. It is exposure to the scriptural revelation of who God is. It is meditating on what he is like that has that is blessed by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, sort of without our approaching it head on, uh, to increase the desire for holiness within us. We, we, we all live in an age where things are very hurried and very rushed. Uh, 
And I suspect it's always been that way. It's just that each generation thinks it's reached a new peak of intensity. I suspect things have always crowded in on folks' lives. Uh, and there's a natural reluctance to spend time with Scripture and meditating on the truth of Scripture. We don't... I, I may be wrong. I, I admit I'm in a foreign country. Um, <laughs> but I, I do feel that we um, have lost the art of religious meditation. It was something that was practiced a lot in um, bygone centuries. I'm thinking perhaps of the Puritan era and with godly men thereafter. And it seems, you know, you can talk about this and you get all sorts of people nowadays talking about spirituality. But in as far as I can see from reading biography of eminent Christians, um, with whom I feel some level of empathy uh, at, a, at a doctrinal level, this meditation is simply prayerful, private reading of Scripture. Reading of Scripture, not setting sort of let's read a chapter and get it over as with as quickly as we can, but seeking to compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, to draw out the meaning. It's possible to encourage one another to do that in terms of small group study, not just a formal sort of session like this, uh, where if one has one someone with whom one can relate and your thinking's on the same level, you can spur each other on. But at the end of the day, it is a personal exercise. It is an exercise in private. And it is focused on going through the word of God and seeking from him a greater awareness of who he is and what he's like. And it's the answer to your question about promoting holiness, in my view, is to say, to seek greater God awareness. And the holiness follows. It's the same answer for happiness as well. <laughs> Colin. Could you talk about the forbearance of God in the sense that God is a holy God and yet he doesn't immediately punish. There is a forbearance there. And, uh, obviously I'm very glad uh, every Christian is very glad of God's forbearance. But could you talk about God's purposes in that? not sure just now if that's next week or the week after. <laughs> These are called trailers. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, um, if I had a time, I was actually going to mention something about that because it comes up in the passage I was alluding to in Romans uh, where uh, there is the talk of God's righteousness uh, where Paul says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. It's a backward-looking statement uh, to the reality that vexed the church of the early centuries. You know, we think we're living in bad times today. The, the, the immorality that existed in the first century AD was just as enormous 
as it is nowadays. And it did vex, it did perplex the early church how God could have allowed this situation to have arisen. And Paul's answer there, his forbearance, is to say that God will demonstrate his justice. That forbearance is temporary. By its very nature, it is temporary. Uh, Paul also said that, did he not, in, uh, it's recorded in the book of Acts, uh, that, that God uh, winked at this um, ooh, in time past, but now is calling uh, for action. Uh, so that you're, it's a real question, but it's a question that perplexes us because we're in the middle of the story and we are assured in Scripture that by the end of the story it will work out. Now, why the story has developed this way I think I shall have to leave until the subsequent episode. I think that's as good a trailer as I'm prepared to give just now. I thought Frank would ask the question. Can we have the answer to... I better say it in... well. No, I got the knee early this time. Yeah. My ears tuned in. It's okay. I, I, I thought I thought you had invented some Old Testament character I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, there are quite a list, uh, five or six different items, uh, but the one I think that is of most significance is that the uh, very poorest of the poor those who couldn't even afford the pair of doves for an offering were allowed to bring a grain offering uh, to the Lord. That is the, the main um, exception. There are one or two other things, but it was really a provision uh, for those who were impoverished in the land. That below the bringing of the two animals there was the possibility of making just a cereal offering, which was obviously without blood. So it's, it's a relatively minor, and it's, that it's not really germane to anything. But thanks for answering. Well, anyway, that's, yes. I should have got the exact verse in my mind, but I haven't. It has been said, I don't know how far you'd go along with this, that uh, one of the reasons why the church's uh, evangelism uh, at the present time appears to be so feeble is that uh, we have lost in the presentation of that sense of the holiness of God on the one hand and the gravity of human sin on the other so in a sense that modern man has no sense of what he is to be saved from how long would you, far would you go along with that because it's Frequently said, and I have to say myself in, in uh, many circumstances, that it's quite rare to hear preached the kind of things that you've talked about tonight in, I guess, most of our churches. 
The church in Britain today, I'll generalize, um, has lost its way spiritually over a great many fundamental evangelical truths. And that's reflected. Even men, ministers, who have a personal knowledge of the truth uh, often don't preach it as often or as clearly as they might because they know of the hostile reaction it's going to receive from their congregations. And it is a sign of the spiritual weakness of the church as a whole that the message of Scripture... It's not as if these are minor themes that one has to pull out, like, like say, the minor theme of the, the very poor man who is making um, the, the meal offering. But the, the doctrines of uh, God's righteousness, his holiness, and man's sin are written in every page of Scripture. They are major doctrines. And when one is un- if the trumpet is giving an uncertain sound, then the message of the truth is not going across. It's a sign of our spiritual weakness. It's a sign of our hesitation in expressing the truth in days of virulent opposition. Uh, there, you won't have it down here, but they're, they're, you'll have the equivalent. There's a sort of religious slot in the radio in the morning. And you hear all sorts of opinions there bar evangelical Christianity. Uh, I have it here too. <laughs> you do have this here, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, the one I listen to happens to be in Radio Scotland, so you, unless you're... But uh, it's the same problem. It's the same problem. And that's true generally. You can express on the, in the media almost any point of view bar that of evangelical Christianity. And we are often tempted to accept that situation. There is a real challenge, which the Christian Institute, let's pay credit where credit is due, which the Christian Institute is, has taken up, has addressed itself to, of setting out the implications, the standards of God's word, in terms of the, the way in which people ought to behave because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And one can set forth the standards of righteousness in a valid way. It's not the same as preaching the gospel. You don't have to punctuate it every sentence by saying, you know, believe and be saved. Because the problem is that to say that to people, you're not communicating with them because they don't really see the need of what you're saying. You, you, you haven't got through to them. And the fundamental need in our land is an awakening to the seriousness of the moral depravity that exists. I met with someone recently. I hadn't met them for many years. Getting old. Um, And we were just thinking about how things have changed from when we were, say, 25 years ago. That things that were hardly ever mentioned aren't even spoken about in public are now blazoned in headlines and available on the internet throughout the world in seconds 
uh, the civilization of the West is morally rotten. And I sometimes fear that what's going to happen to us is what happened to the Christian church in North Africa. The Christian church in North Africa, time of Augustine, was a very strong church, had a very good theological tradition. Uh, If you looked at it, it seemed healthy, as healthy as any branch of the, the church. And because of internal dissension, which I often liken to the denominational rivalries that have existed for the last 150, 200 years in our own countries. Because of that, they were unable to stand before the advance of Islam. I'm not saying I particularly think it's Islam, although that's a very real threat. But our country has lost its moral core and When that happens, civilizations fall. If you go back, that's true even of non-Christian civilizations. In Scripture, one of the major empires of the world that impinged on the Old Testament people was the empire of Assyria. Assyria vanished over a period of 30 years. And the best analysis that I've seen of it was because the ruling class of Assyria became totally effete and perverted in that period. That they undermined the moral stamina of a nation. We wouldn't admire them, but they were soldiers, they were conquerors, they were brutal in their day. But because of the moral decline that took place, their empire couldn't withstand external pressure and crumpled. Same thing happened to a very large extent in the Roman Empire also. And Western civilization is in grave peril because it's lost its moral core and the agenda facing the Christian community, the evan- I have to say evangelical community, the agenda is very much that of presenting Not the gospel, but the need for a gospel. We're one stage further down. We're that low down. It's to alert people to the fact that behavior that is now treated as commonplace is an abomination in the sight of God. Do you want to answer a question about last week? Have we time or would you do it privately? Is that better? Let me hear the question. <laughs> you said at the beginning that we were made in the image of God. You also used uh, an explanation of how we needed to use worldly terminology to explain things. What crossed my mind was that man is body, mind and spirit. Is there any advantage in comparing the three persons of the Trinity with the aspect of man being in three Parts, body, mind, and spirit. Uh, can I just briefly say I, I don't uh, think so. It has got one advantage in that it's dealing with personal aspects. This is an analogy of the Trinity. We were talking about them last week, and I still remember the toothpaste. Um, <laughs> 
That's a better, but my, my problem really is in distinguishing soul and spirit, mind and spirit. Uh, I'm not sure that I would want to adopt a trichotomous view of mankind, and therefore I'm not totally happy with the analogy. But its strength is the fact that it's a, a personal analogy, whereas so many of the other illustrations of the Trinity, shamrocks or whatever, are, are, are at the level of the impersonal.